Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to see stuff coming on at Alder Road. Should have, should have kept my uh, Bob the Builder hat on for this morning, shouldn't I? Um, I really enjoy our worship evening. Sadly, I won't be able to be here tonight. I'm speaking at Broadston Baptist this evening. It was advertised I was there last Sunday. Now, Mailer, but actually, I'm there tonight. So I'll miss the worship night, which I'm um, sad about. But think of me as I'm speaking at Broadston Baptist. Good to partner with our friends there. And then uh, appreciate, appreciate your prayers for next week, next Saturday. I'm going out to the States. We've got a, a team meeting for the advanced team group of churches we particularly partner with. We normally meet twice a year, but this year we felt we needed to have an extra meeting, so we kind of last minute squeezed in a couple of days together, which means going out to North Carolina next Saturday. I'm going to speak at One Harbor Church on Sunday, and then we go into a team meeting for three days before coming back to uh, take Dale and Angie's wedding on the, uh, on the Saturday. Yeah, so uh, pray that I get back, that American Airlines and all the trouble with staffing doesn't mean that I miss... That would just be the worst. If I didn't get back in time for Dale and Angie, I, I think Angie would kill me. <laughs> but anyway, so trusting God so that would all go smoothly. Right, today we are looking at the books of Daniel and Esther. Esther and Daniel. And as we get into this, it would be really helpful if you could grab a Bible. I, I did a as nor did a PowerPoint, but I forgot to upload it to the system, just realized as I was walking up here this morning. So it helped. And anyway, with this, it would really help to have a Bible in front of you because we're going to be between these two books. And uh, also, it helps you to have your, kind of your finger in the pages uh, to see what I'm talking about. So, Book of Esther, page 501 in these Bibles, Book of Daniel, page 884. So, page 501, page 884, nearly 400 pages between the two. And in terms of the canon of the Bible, canon is a term we use to describe the books that make up the Bible and the order in which they come. Daniel and Esther are separated by nearly 400 pages, but in terms of chronology, the actual time in which they happened, uh, the two things, uh, Daniel and Esther, actually happen at about the same time in history. They happen at the same point in, in, in history. And, we, and when we're reading the Bible, we need to understand this, that the the canon of Scripture, the order of the Bible, and the chronology of Scripture don't always match up. And so we, we've been, the last few weeks, we've been particularly focusing in the book of, books of the kings, which tell the story about the kings of Israel and Judah, about all the people's rebellion against God, and about the reality of an enemy coming who's going to take them into exile. And then next week, we're going to be in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which talk about what happens when the people come back from exile. Then in the canon of Scripture, after Ezra and Nehemiah, we get to the book of Esther, which is a story which happens while the people are in exile. And then after the book of Esther, as you're following the Bible through, we then get the books of Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And then we're into the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But those books of the prophets actually chronologically happened at the time of the kings and the time of the exile and the return from exile. So you need to understand that as you're reading the Bible. So we, we, when we read Isaiah, we read Jeremiah, read, read Ezekiel, you need to read it against the history so you can see how the prophets speak into those points of history. Does that all make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay, some nods, vague nods. Okay, right, so we've spent a lot of time the last few weeks in this story about the decline of the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Judah as the nation is split into those two entities about the impending doom of exile which is going to come, and we're now into that exile period. Um, 
And this is a, a time and an experience which is actually very relevant for us because exile is the normal state of being for Christians. First Peter 1, chapter 1, the Apostle Peter writes to God's elect, exiles scattered. What are Christians? Who are Christians? We're people who've been chosen by God, but we're, in a sense, in exile in the world. We're scattered throughout the nations of the world. Not all the Christians in the world live in one place. We're scattered throughout the world, and we do have something of a sense of exile. We are being built as living stones into the house of God, and we have beliefs and values and ways of looking at life and doing things which are often different from the way of the world, the way that exiles think. Exiles have different hopes and loyalties and priorities than the world around them, and that's true for us. And this means that there are times when what we believe as the people of God can bring us into conflict with the world. And we need to think about how we respond when that happens. And uh, for us at the moment, our point of culture, uh, our point of history, that very often seems to be focused particularly on issues of identity, which I'm going to be talking about today, and particularly on issues of sexuality. Uh, June, of course, is Pride Month, and I'm sure that many of you in the workplace are having particular focus on that, diversity training and all that kind of stuff, or maybe the kids coming back from school and talking about things which are being taught at school. And it might be that there are times when some of that's helpful, but there also might be times when you're hearing things or receiving teaching and instructions on things which makes you raises some questions for you in terms of, hey, is this something actually that I am meant to kind of go along with, or am I meant to say no at some points here. And that can be very complex and it's difficult for us. And I know that for some of you in the workplace or dealing with stuff in schools, this can be really hard. And I'm also aware even of, uh, or kind of uh, feel something of the exposure myself in talking about these kind of things on a Sunday. This is a public setting, anybody can walk in. Uh, and I don't want to cause any offense to anyone. And this message is going on YouTube and that's quite exposing actually in terms of just uh, saying these kind of things in the current culture. And I know that even the fact that I'm white and male and middle-aged immediately disqualifies me from talking about this stuff in the eyes of many people. So this is difficult for all of us. If you're in the workplace and you're having to deal with it, it's difficult. It's difficult for me to talk about it. But these are real issues, and the books of Daniel and Esther help us to think about how we respond to these kinds of issues. And uh, on this area, particularly of sexuality, we, have some, we do have some beliefs as, a, as the people of God, which do bring us into conflict with how the world thinks. We believe that God made us in his image, male and female. We believe that sex outside marriage is wrong, and that the only legitimate marriage is that between one man and one woman. And even saying those things is to immediately step into conflict in many ways with many values in our society. And this means that we're having to make choices. There are times we have to make a choice. Am I going to stand on what I believe or am I going to kind of go with the flow of culture? And that's not easy. It's costly. I had one of our young people come up to me after the end of the first service and say, I just cannot take that stand because it's too, it just kind of cancels you in terms of our generation. These are real issues that we're having to wrestle with of real cost. So how, how do we proceed? Well, the books of Esther and Daniel, I think, help us they help us to work out how we engage with power in the context of exile. So what I want to do first is to give a quick overview of the two books, just to help orientate ourselves in what they're about. The book of Daniel opens with the city of Jerusalem under siege. King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come and laid siege to Jerusalem, and he 
takes a bunch of the people off with him to Jerusalem, but he leaves then the kingdom of Judah as a kind of a vassal state, uh, totally under the sway of the Babylonian Empire, but still kind of holding on existing. And then a few years later, he comes back, and this time it's game over, and he raises the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and carries more of the people off to exile in Babylon. And that story is told at the end of the books of the Kings and Chronicles, which we've been in, and also in the book of Ezekiel, which uh, Richard was preaching from last week, refers to that period of life. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is when he takes people off to exile, he chooses the best. He chooses the, the most able and intelligent and gifted members of the Jewish community and has them serve in his court. And the book of Daniel starts with Daniel and three friends of his, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are chosen to serve in the court of the Babylonian king. And that provides all kinds of opportunities, but also all kinds of challenges. And the story starts with Daniel and his friends refusing to eat the food they are given, because it doesn't tell us explicitly, but we assume it's because it would have been offered to idols. And so Daniel and his friends said, no, this is a line we're not going to cross. We're not going to eat this food. No. Begins that kind of conflict. And, it, and as the story goes on, Daniel and his friends refuse to offer worship to the things that the king says that they should worship. But then Daniel has this opportunity to interpret the dreams of the king, and as a consequence, he, he is raised to a position of prime minister. And then the second half of the book of Daniel is Daniel prophesying into the ages to come. Daniel sees the kingdoms, the empires that are going to rise and fall from the Babylonian Empire through to the Roman Empire and down into our own day. The prophecy of Daniel is relevant and true. And in the last verse of the book of Daniel, Daniel is commended by the Lord. Daniel 12, verse 13. The Lord speaks to Daniel and says, As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel, you're going to come into treasure. You're not going to go back to Jerusalem, but you're going to get a greater inheritance in God. That's the story of Daniel. The story of Esther also starts with a king. This is a different king. This is King Xerxes. Xerxes was king of the Medes and the Persians. And uh, the Medes and the Persians were the empire which superseded the Babylonians. Babylonian empire, that gets taken over by the Medes and the Persians. Xerxes is king of that empire. And actually, there's a lot in Esther which is offensive, certainly to our modern reading of things. And it starts with an offensive story that Xerxes is offended by his wife over something which we would think was totally trivial, but he deposes her, and uh, then his civil servants, uh, we think Boris Johnson is bad, but imagine this happening, the civil servants say, let's have a beauty pageant and get all the, uh, the best-looking girls in the kingdom to come, and for the king to choose the one that he wants to be his wife, to become the new queen. Now, this action, the action for this story all happens in a place called Susa, which is the royal capital where Xerxes is king. And in that city is a Jewish family. There's a girl called Esther who's an orphan, and she's being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And Esther enters this beauty pageant to choose the new king, and it's unclear why she does. The story doesn't tell us whether it was her decision or Mordecai pushing her, or whether she just gets kind of plucked off the street by the king's officials. We're not told. But what we are told is that Mordecai instructs her she's not to reveal that she is Jewish. 
She's to enter this process, go into the royal court, prepare herself, see if the king finds her acceptable, but she's not to reveal who she really is. She then wins the competition and becomes queen, and the story then shifts from Esther to Mordecai. Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. He reports that to Esther. Esther reports it to the king. The plot is foiled. All's good. But then Mordecai himself gets into trouble because the king has a particular favorite, a man called Haman. And the king issues an order that everybody is to bow down and honor Haman, and Mordecai refuses to do that. As a consequence, Haman wants to kill Mordecai, but not only kill Mordecai, but kill all Mordecai's people. And at that point, Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, now you need to reveal who you really are and ask the king to save us. And that story is interwoven with another story where the king is having a sleepless night and asks for the annals of his kingdom to be read to him. And he comes across a story about this plot to assassinate him, which Mordecai had exposed. And he says, has Mordecai ever been honored for this? And he hasn't. And so the king orders Haman, Mordecai's enemy, to have a parade to celebrate Mordecai. Things go from bad to worse then for Haman. Haman not only has a humiliation of having to honor his enemy, he ends up himself being killed. And the people of, uh, of God, the Jews, are rescued. Esther takes the step, the courageous step of going to the king, risking her own life in order to save her people. And so this is a story of rescue and of success. And like Daniel, Mordecai becomes prime minister. And just as the last verse of Daniel is a commendation of Daniel, the last verse in the book of Esther is a commendation of Mordecai. Esther 10 verse 3, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent amongst the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So both these stories end well, but they do reveal rather different approaches to how you navigate the complexities of exile. With, with Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there, there seems to be a sense in which they are very uncompromising about how they deal with authority, but also very wise in how they approach it. Um, Daniel never hides who he is. And in this, he doesn't seek confrontation. He doesn't go in looking for trouble, but there are clear lines which he won't cross. And for him and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are willing to face death in order to maintain their integrity. And they don't seek power, but because they're so gifted and blessed by God, all kinds of opportunities come their way. The story with Mordecai seems a little bit different. There is a, a kind of a little bit of a hint in the story that Mordecai is perhaps actively seeking power, that he's perhaps trying to manipulate things so Esther becomes queen in order to get power himself. And also, Mordecai does make this decision when Esther first enters the court of the king that she's not to reveal who she really is. She's not to reveal her origin, her identity, her nationality, her belief. And we see this difference also in, in the stories which are told about when Daniel and his friends and Esther enter the court. Uh, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, Esther, uh, Daniel 1 verse 8. Esther 2 verse 8 to 9 Esther won favor and was provided with beauty treatments and special food. Daniel refuses to eat the royal food, and the Bible commends him for that. Esther 
eats it and nothing is said. The Bible doesn't offer any verdict about Esther's participation. And, and it might have been different circumstances, we don't know, but it does raise a question for us. Was, was that potentially a compromise? We see that Daniel is completely uncompromised. Was Esther perhaps compromising somewhat with the system? And it, and it does seem that in terms of the difference between these two characters, Daniel, right from the beginning, says, this is who I am. I'm a Jew, I'm a member of the people of God, and that means there are certain things I won't do, even if it's potentially going to cost me my life. Now, Esther also risks her life in the end, but because of what Mordecai tells her, at first it seems that she turns up and, I'm just another girl from Susa, that there's nothing distinct about her. She's just another of the, girl, another of the girls in this crowd of girls who are getting chosen by the king. And, and that does raise a question for us. What, what would we do in this kind of situation? Put yourself in the shoes of Daniel or Esther. What would you do? Another example from these stories, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, disobey the king's command. The king commands, puts up a big statue, and says, everybody's got to worship, bow down. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to obey the king's commands. King Xerxes gives a command that everybody is to honor Haman, but Mordecai disobeys that command. Two parallel stories. Daniel 3.16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're, there's a line here we're just not going to cross. We we're worshipping a different God, which means that we cannot obey you, O king. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. King Xerxes honoured Haman, elevating him, giving him a seat of honour higher than anyone else. All the officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Now, at this point in the story, Mordecai had actually revealed who he was. The other people at the gate know that Mordecai is a Jew. And so both Mordecai and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taking a stand on the basis of their Jewish identity, of who they are and what they believe. But there does seem to be a bit of a difference in the stand they're taking. It's, it's clear that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to worship the idol would have been wrong. It would have been idolatry. But the question I have is whether if Haman had honored, if Mordecai had honored Haman, whether that would have been wrong or actually whether it would just been appropriate flexibility. Because scripture is clear, we're not to worship false gods, but scripture doesn't say anything about us refusing to honor those in authority. Actually, the scriptures tell us to honor those in authority. So, so perhaps Mordecai should have been a little bit more flexible here. Again, what would we do? When, when should we stand our ground and when should we be a little bit more flexible? And the consequences of these two stories are that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are rescued by God and then honored by the king, whereas Mordecai's refusal to honor Haman actually puts all the Jewish people in danger. So is Mordecai's inflexibility actually not as wise as perhaps it could be. I think Mordecai is trying to navigate, as we are in our day, a gray area. And 
in our lives, there's, there's clear stuff and then there's other clear stuff. And in between, there's all kinds of shades of gray. And there are lines which can't be crossed, but there's also some stuff which is hard to navigate. And I think that Mordecai is trying to navigate that gray zone. And perhaps he leans too far one way and should have been more flexible the other way. Anyway, another key difference between these two stories is the presence of God or the recognition of God. So the, the existence, the reality of God is absolutely central to the story of Daniel. Every page of the book of Daniel, sometimes almost every verse, there's a, a reference to the Lord. Daniel prays, Daniel fasts, God speaks to Daniel and Daniel prophesies. Dan, Daniel's life just seems to be saturated with the reality of the presence of God. Turn to the book of Esther, and God is not named. The book of Daniel is 12 chapters long, and it's full of God. The book of Esther is 10 chapters long, and God isn't even named. There's no reference to, to God in the, book of Daniel, in the book of Esther. And that can seem rather strange. Now, the sovereignty of God is absolutely central to both stories. We see that in, in Daniel's story. Daniel's story is that God is sovereign. There are all these kings. There's all these empires coming and going, but in the end, God is the great king who is building his kingdom. The sovereignty of God is also central to Esther's story because when she summons up, takes her courage, takes her life in her hands and goes to the king and says, save my people, I'm a Jew. I hadn't told you, but I'm a Jew. Save my people. When she steps forward with that incredible moment of courage, God, in his sovereign power, intervenes and the king listens and the Jewish people are saved. Daniel and Mordecai and Esther are all Bible heroes. They're all commended in Scripture. But it is interesting how the focus of Daniel is so much on the Lord and in the story of Esther, God seems much more of a background figure. And so what can we learn from this and, and who should we emulate? Of course, we don't know all the details. We don't know everything that was going on. We don't know all the things that were said or not said. We don't know every motive and intention and action. But there are questions we can ask of these stories which speak to us about how we can engage when we're challenged with these kinds of issues. And, and it does feel to me as if Mordecai perhaps at times takes a kind of a more human path, that he, he tries to fix things himself sometimes, and that doesn't always work out too well. But God is still gracious and God still saves. In the story of Daniel, it seems that Daniel is much more conscious of God's direct involvement. And, and it seems to me that, that, that Daniel is a more straightforward character than Mordecai in many ways. It's like Daniel is, says, this is who I am. And you can make me prime minister or you can throw me to the lions. Your choice, but I'm not, this is who I am. He, he seems a bit more straightforward to me than perhaps Mordecai does. Now, how should we act then? in a world which wants us to bow down to all kinds of things. There, there are some things which it would just be sin to bow down to. There are idols which would be sinful to bow down to. But there are other things which maybe it's a bit, things which might make us feel a bit uncomfortable, but where it's appropriate to be a bit flexible and to say, well, we're just kind of, we will go with that and not, not, not kind of make a, a fight on that particular hill. How do, how do we make those kind of decisions? How, how, do, we, how do we choose? What we really could do with, is, rather than 30 minutes, we could do with several hours to talk through a whole bunch of case studies and some of the stuff that some of you are really resting with in this. Of course, we can't do that this morning. But 
let me give you some pointers and some principles which I think might help us as we navigate this stuff. The first one is to remember that we are exiles. Actually, we are standing in the same kind of shoes that Daniel, Mordecai, and Esther stood in. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, to God's elect, exiles scattered. This is who we are. And that means that we won't always feel at home in the world as it currently is. And that's okay. That sometimes stuff will happen which will make us feel uncomfortable, which will bring us into a sense of conflict with the world. And, and that's all right. Actually, if, if we never feel that kind of discomfort in the world, there's probably something wrong with our discipleship. If, we, if we're never made uncomfortable by the demands the world places upon us, there's probably something wrong with our, our discipleship. So remember we are exiles. We do have different values. We have a different Lord. We have a different king. We have different hopes. Second thing is we then need to know who we are in Christ. The sense of identity is, is the key issue in our age. All the cultural battles that we're fighting at the moment, it's all about identity. Who am I? Where do I get my sense of worth and validation from? And as we read these stories, we, we see that Daniel and Esther and Mordecai, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they knew who they were. They knew that they were Jewish. They knew that they belonged to God's people and that that then shaped how they lived. And we need to be similarly clear about our, our identity. Who am I? Primarily, firstly, I am found in Christ. I belong to him. That is my primary identity, above all the other things which give me identity. First Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christian, who are you? This is what you are. You belong to this people. This is your identity. And, and if, if, if Mordecai made a mistake, I think it was that at that first point, he said to Esther, don't tell them who you are. And Daniel didn't do that. From the first moment, Daniel said, this is who I am. And, and I think for us, as we navigate things, as we navigate the, the greys of life, it's normally a mistake not to say right at the top who we are. And you do that wisely. You read the story about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Mordecai at the gate. They, they do this wisely. I wouldn't recommend tattooing a fish on your head and kind of headbutting people, I'm a Christian. It's just not the way to proceed. Uh, as we read these stories, one of the things that's really notable about these characters is that none of them are weird. Mm. They're not weird. We don't, let's not be weird Christians. But let's not, let's not be quiet and ashamed about the fact that we're Christians. Let's, let's own who we are, our sense of identity. And third thing, then, is to live faithfully and wisely. We, we do need to be alert to the idols that surround us. Now, sometimes the, the, the things which ask us to bow down, they're, they're not as obvious as a statue which King Nebuchadnezzar sticks up and says, you've got to bow down and worship this. They're not as obvious as that. But they still exist. And we shouldn't seek confrontation and we should honor what should be honored. We shouldn't go looking for trouble. We, need, we shouldn't be inflexible but we do need to be clear about what are gospel issues and not compromise on those things. So live faithfully, but live wisely. This is, this is very real for many of you. And even this past week, I've been helping somebody who'd 
being part of some staff training, which was just very unhelpful in talking with them about how they might then approach management team in terms of responding to that and all that kind of stuff. And think about how to do that wisely in a way which isn't confrontational, isn't aggressive, but which is honest. We need to live faithfully and wisely. And the fourth thing is that we need to be unsurprised if being faithful to Jesus results in trouble. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If, if testing times come, Peter says, that's not strange. That's what you should expect. Why? Because you're exiles. That's what life is like for exiles. Testing times, difficulties. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Mordecai and Esther, they all experience the reality of these difficult testing times. And you need to be ready for it because the resistance might cost. This isn't just theoretical. If you're a young person in school and you do choose to take a stand on a few things, that's going to be potentially massively costly. In the workplace, if you take a stand on a few things, that you might get hauled up before HR, you might risk a promotion, you might even risk your job in the end. So this isn't stuff to treat trivially. This is deeply serious. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We need to be ready for this stuff. But the final thing is we need to remember the rewards. Why, why, would, you, why would you even countenance taking a stand on some things? Why, why not just go with the flow? Why, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, risk being thrown into the fiery furnace? Why, Daniel, risk being thrown into the den of lions? Why, Esther, risk your neck going to the king? Why do that? You've got to have... It's got to be worth something. If you're going to make a risk that big... You've got to be certain that something better is coming your way. And that's what the Lord spoke to Daniel, that last verse of Daniel. Daniel 12, 13. You will rest, and at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. I mean, Daniel experienced the highs and the lows. He was prime minister, and he did get thrown to the lions. He had years of prominence in the kingdom and years of obscurity. He wasn't going to get back to Jerusalem and in, back to his inheritance there, but the Lord says, you will rise and you will receive your inheritance. Daniel saw what was going to come, empires rising, empires falling, but the kingdom of God would in the end prevail and fill the earth, and in that, Daniel would receive his inheritance. We've got to believe the same thing for us. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you take a stand? Why would you own who you are? This is the real test. If you're not a believer here this morning, I've been talking to believers primarily. If you're not a follower of Jesus, why would you even join us? Why think about following Jesus? but it's going to make you uncomfortable in the world in which you live. There's got to be a reward which makes it worth the sacrifice. Now, everybody bows to something. Everybody worships something. Are we going to worship the gods of this age or are we going to worship the God of the ages? This is what it says in Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Daniel, what's going to happen? You're going to die, but you're going to be raised in new life and receive your inheritance. Christian, what's your story? Well, you've died already in Christ. And in him, you will appear in glory. Is there a reward for us? Yes. In Christ, we will possess all things. We will possess the whole earth, the whole universe. It will be ours in Christ. 
That is why it is worth at times taking a stand to say, this is who I am, even if it costs me. This is who I am. So the question for us this morning, Gateway Church, whose will we be? Let's be Christ's. Let's be Jesus's. Let's, let's be wise like Daniel. Let's be courageous like Esther. Let's learn when to flex and adjust and not fight stupid fights, but let's also learn where the lines are from which we, which we can't cross, what the idols are to which we will not bow, even if it costs us. Because in Christ, our reward is great. In Christ, we have it all. Let's belong to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. You stand with me and let's pray. Jesus, I pray for us. I, I, I pray, Lord God, that we would pursue you with conviction and with joy, knowing that yeah, whatever troubles come our way at the moment, they are relatively light and momentary compared with the weighty glory that is out in Christ. Thank you that in you we do, will, possess all things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. I pray that you would give us wisdom in this complex world to navigate it in a way which is full of grace, seasoned with salt, doesn't go looking for trouble, isn't confrontational, but in which there is a a resolute clarity about us, about who we are and what that means, and the lines that we just cannot cross. I pray that you give us the courage we need, give us the trust in you that we need, give us the certainty of our reward that we need. Lord, give us a delight in what it means to be children of God. Yeah, that though we might at times, kind of the name of Christ might come as a reproach upon us in the world, that actually to carry the name of Christ is the greatest honor and glory and joy. Let us know these things, grasp them and live them, I pray, for your glory and our goods. Amen.